The following presentation is from North Pine Baptist Church. We trust that it will help you learn more about God and His message for the world. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au. Said we're in, uh, continuing uh, now our series on uh, the upper room discourse. The discourse has finished, and the great high priestly prayer begins today. Or we begin to look at it today. It was like a millennia ago. So today we're going to look at the first 19 verses of chapter 17. So if you've got your Bibles, please open there uh, with me, and we will read through. All of this, but I'm not going to use in the words of Jesus' prayer. And as Brenda said, this is a prayer where Jesus prays for you. At some stage, you need to let that sink in. The sections we look at today, Jesus offers a, a prayer for, you might say, for himself and, and for his disciples. And next week, we're going to look at uh, Jesus' prayer for all Christians. But just Think about that. Jesus prays for you. I trust that this morning, as we look through Jesus' prayer for his disciples, who we can bear, uh, that we'll find encouragement through his word. So let's read now. John chapter 17, starting at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and I have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those who you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. 
and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you gave, you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also, also may be sanctified in truth. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We pray that your Holy Spirit will teach us through it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever heard someone pray for you? Or not just known that someone is praying for you, but actually heard their words, heard them pray for you. A prayer for someone in their hearing is a prayer for their benefit. It's for their benefit in the sense that it conveys the, the support and the commitment that the prayer has to that person, to their well-being. It's also for their benefit because the prayer that is offered is a source of encouragement for the person. As you hear the words the person prays for you, for the Heavenly Father, maybe that you're encouraged. But of course, it is a prayer for their benefit because you are bringing their needs and their burdens to the Almighty God of the universe, the one who is all powerful. In John 17, Jesus prays to his disciples in their hearing. His prayer is a prayer for their benefit. We see in John chapter 12 that uh, Lazarus' resurrection, Jesus also prays out loud for the benefit of those around him. But we're aware that Jesus, a lot of the time, when he prays, he goes away to a quiet place and prays. Yet now, in the hearing of his disciples, he opens up that intimate, intimate relationship with the Father and prays, allowing them, the disciples, to hear the words of the Son to the Father. He provides a source of encouragement for them. He reveals his heart for them, his true heart, but also his heart for the Father as well. 
His heart is for the glory of God, the glory of the Father in the world to which the Son has been sent. And we notice that this, this glory of the Father is the focus of the first few verses, the first five verses of chapter 17. Jesus asks one thing in this section, that the Father would glorify Him, the Son. We find it in verses 1 and 5. Glorify your Son, that the Son might glorify you, Jesus said. Verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. the reason that Jesus is asking that the Father would glorify the Son is for the glory of the Father. See that in verse 1, that the Son might glorify you. Now the, the glory of something, we might say, is its wonder, its splendor. Or if you would allow me to invent a word, its wowness. To glorify something is to draw attention to its splendor, to its wowness. To say, hey, check this out. How good is it to draw everyone's attention to it? Now, the, the millennia, humans have developed an ability to keep in glory. And you do this by ascribing glory to things that don't deserve to be glorified. You have a meal and you love to take it. Oh, how awesome is that? That was awesome. Or maybe you see a, a great sporting game. Awesome game. Pretty much whenever we use the word awesome these days, it's describing the gl- glory to something that doesn't deserve it. Or maybe the baby, the new baby, sleeps for three hours straight. How often do we selfishly ascribe glory to something that isn't truly glorious? Think about it, it'd be like going to the Grand Canyon, standing with this wonder of the world in front of you and go, how awesome am I? Knowing that this flaw exists in humanity's assessment of what deserves to be glorified. The question that the passage poses for us at this point is what makes Jesus worthy of glory? Verses 2 to 5 to 5 justify Jesus' worthiness of glory. Verse tells us that Jesus is worthy of glory because as the divine Son who shared in the glory of God, since before the world existed. Verse 4 tells us that Jesus is worthy of glory because he accomplished the work that the Father gave him to do. Verse 2 tells us that Jesus is worthy of glory because the Father gave Jesus authority over all flesh as the one through whom God's redemptive plan to be exercised. 
is the authority to give eternal life. And before the disciples can ask the question, or asking the question of themselves, what do you mean by eternal life? What is it? Jesus answered them in verse 3. Says, and this is eternal life. For they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. How do you understand eternal life? What do you think about when you hear the phrase eternal life? Maybe you understand that chronologically. You understand it's an experience for a future point in time. Eternal life is something that we will receive, something we will have after we die and then go and meet Jesus. And whilst that is true, that is an underdeveloped understanding of eternal life. If we narrowly understand eternal life as essentially a future experience, then we risk an underdeveloped understanding of what Jesus' death has achieved. Jesus died for our sins and gives us a receipt to claim our prize later on, to cash it in later on. That's the danger of having an underdeveloped understanding of eternal life. The eternal life is more than that, friends. Eternal life needs to be understood relationally. Eternal life is not just something we hope for in the future. It's not merely an event we're looking to get into later on down the track. Eternal life is essentially knowing God, being in right relationship with the eternal God of the universe. So it's more than just a future reality, it is a present reality. Eternal life is a present reality that consists of knowing God through Jesus Christ and living in right relationship with Him. Let me say that again. Eternal life is a present reality that consists of knowing God through Jesus Christ and living in right relationship with Him. Do you have eternal life? Sometimes we forget that relational aspect of eternal life. Don't we? we see it as a, a future to do this. Something to kick off when we die. Friends, eternal life is about relationship with God now. Jesus didn't just pay our debt so that we can pass it in later. He paid our debt to bring us to God now. His life here is not a waiting one. Life now on this earth is a living life. Living in relationship with God. 
that how you see life? Is that how you're living? Is that how you're speaking right now? Are you waiting for just a future reality or are you living the present reality of a relationship with Jesus? Living in relationship with Jesus first requires a right response to the revelation of who God is. We see this in the disciples' response to Jesus' revelation of God in verses 6 to 10. We'll notice that the glory of God's theme is still carried on, it, it continues. And this time, the, the glory of the Son in the disciples is seen and made possible through their right response to Him. Not only was Jesus the one through whom God's redemptive plan is exercised, Jesus also had the divine task of making the Father known, or we might say, of manifesting His name to the world. Jesus is God's self-expression. The Word, or we might say, the Logos of God. We might also say that as the Word of God, Jesus simultaneously is and delivers God's revelation of His true self. He reveals God's true nature. And He gives God's true message. So notice in this section of the prayer, I have. Jesus lists off some I have that He has done. The first one is found in verse 6. It says, I have manifested your name. And in verse 8, Jesus says that He has given them, that is His disciples, the words you gave me. Manifesting is a word that just basically means to reveal, to make something known. And your name can be understood as being God's character, His nature. So when Jesus says, I have manifest, manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world in verse He is saying that he revealed the Father's character, his true nature to the disciples. And the disciples have had a right response to this revelation. We notice that through that they had the Jesus mission. Verse 6, he says, they have kept your word. Kept here can be understood in the, the sense of obedience, obeying, they've observed your word. The right response. The disciples have had a right response to the revelation of the character of God. Sort of like a right response in stopping when the light turns red. Or like going back to class when the school bell rings. 
when it's six o'clock in the morning, you hear the garbage truck in the street behind you and you haven't put the bins out, the right response is to get out of your warm bed and quickly go and take the wheels in. The disciples have had a right response to the revelation of the character of God. Phrase your word. Word is the same same word used logos as in right at the start in John one, the start of John's gospel. And there it is used to explain that Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God. He is the Creator God in the flesh. He comes to the world to make God known. Hence Jesus' statement in verse 6, they have kept your word. Means the disciples have made the right response to Jesus' revelation of the Father. And the right response of the disciples continues through more they have. And this time Jesus talks about their right response to the message that Jesus shared. You might remember in John the words believe, receive, and know are all key words for John's gospel. Verses 7 and 8 of John 17. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. They have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Now look at how this response matches up with the right response to Jesus as we see in John 1. There in verses 11 and 12. says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, the result of a right response is that the Son, Jesus, then glorified in his disciples. Verse 10 of John 17, All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. God's character, his true nature, is seen in the one he sends. And now the one the ones who are being sent are the disciples, verse 18 of John 17 tells us that. Because verse 9, we see the transition where Jesus isn't just praying for himself, he's praying for his disciples. And the things that he petitions the Father to do on behalf of the disciples, for the benefit of the disciples. And he asked them, asked the Father to keep them and to sanctify them. The first petition there is found in verses 11 to 16, where Jesus prays for the disciples' protection, that God would keep them. 
He asked the fathers to protect or to guard the disciples on two fronts. Firstly, from internal divisions and dissensions, and also from external forces that would come against them. Faith of protection from internal divisions is found in verse 11, where Jesus says, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Why? That they may be one, even as we are one. To create the unity within the disciples' group. A unity that reflects the unity of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus asked the Father to protect the disciples. And against the danger of being torn apart from disagreements and dissension that comes from within their community. This is something that Jesus has done, that Jesus has protected them from while he was with them. Obviously, except for Judas Iscariot, the son of destruction, for the purpose of the fulfillment of the scriptures, he was allowed. Prayer for protection from external forces is found in verse 15. Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Remember, Jesus says that the world hates the disciples because they're not of the world. So, he prays that the Father would protect them from the, the results of the hatred of the world. The disciples will have opponents in the world, chief of whom is the evil one. Or as John also describes in, in his gospel, the ruler of the world, the devil, Satan. He is the chief opponent of the disciples. And Jesus here prays that the Father would protect the disciples. The sort of thing a shepherd would do, isn't it? The shepherd would protect the flock from themselves. The shepherd also protects the flock from the wolves, the outside forces. Jesus is the good shepherd. Here's the second petition to sanctify the disciples is found in verses 17 to 19. And it relates to Jesus sanctifying or consecrating of himself and of his sending the disciples into the world. Jesus asked the Father to sanctify them or to set them apart for the, their mission, their divinely appointed task task of making Jesus known, being his witnesses in the world. Sanctify them in the truth, Jesus said. Your word, or again, as that word logos, is truth. What is truth? It's the Father's revelation of himself in the Son, in Jesus. The true, true, true nature of God seen in Jesus. The true words, the true message of God shared by Jesus. 
message of grace. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The disciples will also be sanctified through the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of truth, who will guide them into all truth. The disciples were sanctified or set apart for the Lord's Word as they learned to live in obedience to the Word of God. And Jesus sanctified himself. He dedicates himself as an offering for the disciples for their benefit. So they might say that in Jesus, the disciples' lives, their thoughts, actions, desires are all transformed to look more and more like Jesus, revealing the nature and message of God to the world around us. I'm not sure how you understand the process of Sanctification. I must admit, in the past, I've sort thought, thought about it as this mystical thing that the Holy Spirit just does in some way to me. And, and somehow, each day, more and more, I look more like this. Yes, sir. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. He guides us into all truth. But friends, we have a part to play. And we play that part by doing what you're doing now. By gathering as the body of Christ. By singing the truth. By praying the truth. By hearing and reading the truth. The process of our sanctification happens through the Holy Spirit, and as yet we spend our own quiet time in the truth. Friends, if this is the only time we're spending in the Word of God, I'm sorry, but it's not enough. We need to be regularly spending time with the Word of God open, quietly by ourselves. We're in a small group of Christians. Immersing ourselves in the truth. We need to be spending time quietly on our, on our own as individuals, praying, in, being in relationship through prayer with the Father. We need to be doing that in small groups where that happens on a Sunday morning before church or during the week. But just as others, friends, just be friends together. Are you being sanctified in the truth, friends? Are you playing your part in your sanctification? Because you've got a part to play. Please don't think that the, the Lord gives us the Holy Spirit so that we can just go about our lives and somehow we'll mystically, magically just become more like Jesus. Well, we need to play our part in being sanctified in the truth, and the Holy Spirit will play his part 
in transforming our thoughts, our words, our desires, to be more and more the third thoughts, the words, and the desires of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you overheard Jesus praying this prayer, if you were one of those disciples, how might it make you feel? What might it look like for us to pray more for the benefit of others? As a church, what might that look like? To take Jesus' prayer as a model for how we as individuals and we as a church pray. As we reveal our heart for God and for one another in the hearing of one another. As we encourage each other through prayer. As we convey our commitment and support for one another through prayer, what might that look like? What might be some of the barriers that are keeping us from doing that? Maybe it's the barrier that keeps you from doing that because you don't really know one another. There's something you can do about it, then. I would suggest try taking the first 10 minutes after a church service to speak to someone you do not know well or do not know at all. Can you do that? Could you do that? The first 10 minutes. After that, you're free to talk with family, good friends, that sort of thing. But could you spend the first 10 minutes maybe getting to know someone you don't know at all or don't know well? Know them better. Get to know their needs, their situations better. Would that help you to pray for their benefit? Maybe there's just a lack of culture in our church of praying for the benefit of others and doing that in their hearing, not just when we're at home with a prayerless devotion. Maybe that's a barrier. I'm not sure. But let's do that. Think about that. Maybe we need to be really intentional in, in cultivating that sort of culture more. Maybe we've all got a part to play in it. Is that sort of community the sort of community you would like to be part of? Community of disciples of Jesus who are praying for the benefit of one another, whether that be in private or in one, one another's field. If that is, then what are you willing to do to be part of it? Let me pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this high priestly church. We thank you that our Lord Jesus allowed his precious prayer to be 
praise in the hearing of his disciples. And so, Father, I thank you that your Holy Spirit has enabled that this prayer be recorded for us and for our benefit. And we look forward to next week when we see that we are included in this prayer. We thank you for the, the heart that this reveals. Jesus' heart for his disciples. His heart for your glory. We thank you for the commitment that it shows that Jesus has to your glory and to your disciples. We thank you for the encouragement that we can have by looking at these words, by hearing these words. Father, we acknowledge that we need you to fulfill these words. Lord, it is not within us to keep ourselves in your word of truth. If it's left up to us, Father, we will fail. So we thank you that it is not left up to us. So, Lord, we ask that you would keep us, you would guard us in the truth, that you would keep us in unity with one another as you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray that you would keep us, you would protect us from the evil one, from those who oppose us. And Father, we pray that you would sanctify us in this truth. That you would challenge us and lead us to more and more in spending time in your word and in relationships with you. And through your spirit, transforming us, changing us to more and be more and more like Jesus, we pray. For his glory we ask in his name. Thanks for joining us for this presentation from North Pine Baptist Church. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au.